If you got a Bible, if you would turn uh, with me to the book of Luke, book of Luke. It's in the New Testament, um, so towards the back, so to speak. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one on a row near you. Um, you can ask your neighbor for it. Um, there are plenty of Bible apps out there. We use the version called the ESV, so, um, but there are a lot of good ones out there. So just letting you know kind of where we're coming from. The reason I point you there is because when we preach here, we preach through books of the Bible. And so we're in the book of Luke and have been for a little while here. And so the reason we're in the middle of Luke 12 is because uh, we have preached all the way up through to that point. Last week was Luke 12, 1 through 21. And so today we'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. Now I'm going to read just a small portion on the front end, but we will... uh, be looking at the entirety of that passage. So I'm going to read verses 29 through 32 of Luke chapter 12 as we tackle the subject of anxiety. You nervous yet? Here we go. (laughs) A little anxious about this. Here we go. Verse 29. I'll read the word of God, then I'll pray. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure. To give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I come to you as your child. Your child not because I was inherently important, but because you are inherently merciful. And I come and I find all my value and acceptance in you. And I come as a weak little child. And I pray for those in this room that have trusted in Jesus that they too would come as children ready to learn from your letters to us, your words to us in the Bible as you speak to your children. I pray for those who are not followers of Jesus and I pray that God you would break down religious facade, that you would shatter self-sufficient hearts, and that, God, what you would leave every single one of us with is a view of your Son. For when we see Him as He is, we will be overwhelmed by His mercy and we will surrender our lives to Him. God, would you create surrender in this room? Would you crush our fears? And would you cast us at your feet because you are a good father. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So here's a verse for us. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 25 says this. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. But a good word makes him glad. Anxiety in a man's heart, person's heart, makes them heavy, weighed down. But a good word makes him glad. That's my prayer for you today, is that we would acknowledge how heavy it is for us to carry around anxiety, and that God would take his good word and he would make our hearts glad. So that's my prayer for you, is that you would leave here Happy, glad in the Lord. But to go there, we must admit that fears are ruthless. Our goal today is not to solve all of your fear issues. (laughs) I wish I had that power. I don't, but I'm going to point you to the one who does. What we're hoping for is that you begin to get understanding for when your fears come what to do with them, okay? 
How do I process the fact that every single person in this room, including me, has fears? What do I do with those? That's the hope. We would see that fears weigh us down and that we would believe that when God's involved, there's always a good word for us that can make us glad. God's here, He's with us, and He has given us a good word this morning that can make the anxious heart glad. So that's our aim. But we're going to start by telling you that you're afraid, something that you already know. There's a lot of fears in this room. Let's see if I hit a few of them. Fears that planes will crash. Fears that a car will wreck. Fears of bridges, fears of heights, fears of snakes or spiders or other aggressive type animals. Some of you, fears, for you OCD ones in the room, fears of disorder, things not being picked up, dust, something. So the question is, have I hit you yet? Some of you are like, yes, others of you, maybe not. Well, let's keep going. What about fears of being exposed? Fears that I won't be respected. Fears that she won't like me or he won't accept me. They won't think I'm beautiful. What about the fear of, I'm going to fail? What about the fear of, God won't provide? Or, my children will never turn to Jesus. Or they won't obey. What about my marriage won't make it? Or that person's never going to change. Or we won't have what we need. Now I know I've hit you common to every single person on the planet. And the hardest thing about dealing with fears is that in order to deal with them, you can't hide from them. You have to say that I am afraid. Just like any problem in your heart, any problem on the planet, you've got to admit you have a problem before there can be a solution. The anxious heart weighs you down. It is a burden too heavy for you to carry. And honestly, if you're not careful, your mind will be running down the road of all the things I just listed and you won't be able to focus on anything I say for the rest of the time. I pray that you're able to kind of pull it back in long enough for us to dive into God's good word because his good word will make our heart glad. So I ask you this question, and you need to be honest with yourself. What are you afraid of? It's not rhetorical. I'm not going to tell you what you're afraid of. I just did that some. What are you specifically afraid of? I want you to think on it. One or two things. This is what the Psalms would call a Selah. If you've ever read the Psalms and you see this little phrase out at the end, it says S-E-L-A-H. That means stop and think. You might not have had that in a sermon or some type of presentation, but that's what we just did. Stop and think. Now, fears, your fears, whatever you just conjured up, they have a language. Just like all emotions have a language. Reading a book called by Ed Welch called Running Scared. It's a really helpful book if you want to dive into this some more. I'm going to be using a lot from his book. This book, Running Scared, he says fears have a language, just like all emotions. So anger, it has a language. Here's what anger says. Here's the language of anger. It says, you are wrong, and that bothers me. Embarrassment and shame, they have a language. It's, I am wrong, and I don't know how to deal with it. Fear has a language as well, and it's, I'm in danger. 
I'm in danger. I'm in danger of losing reputation. I'm in danger of losing something I love. I'm in danger of not being provided for. I'm in danger of... You fill in the blank. I'm in danger. And what we want to dive into today is how in the world do we stop that voice that churns in the head that says, I'm in danger. I'm paralyzed by my fears. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to move forward. How do we stop that voice? And create new language. Ed Welch says that fear has a future time zone. It's afraid of what's to come. The unknown. It is at times what's right before us, but it's mostly about what is unknown and what's ahead of us. So I think there are three things that Jesus teaches us in this passage today. About fear. Number one is that fear forgets. Fear creates a sense of amnesia. Fear forgets, and we need to understand what we are forgetting when we are afraid. Number two is that fears expose our smallness. Fears expose our smallness. But not only do fears forget and expose our smallness, fears lead us someplace. They're leading us someplace. And where Jesus invites us into is to take our fears down a path of trust. That fears can lead us to trust God rather than ourselves. So, let's get at it. Fear forgets, number one. Let's begin in verse 22. It says this, And he said to his disciples, Therefore, now, what's that for? It's, from what came above. Now, John Mark um, preached last week, and as he preached, he began to explain what the passage above was telling us. Let me summarize it briefly. Ultimately, Jesus says, do not fear other things. Instead, fear the Lord. The contrast is that the fear of other things you, leaves you running away, but the fear of God actually draws you in. And brings you closer. It's totally different in nature. Because God is safe and secure. And trustworthy and always delivers. All these other things. They fail to deliver. So they leave us running. Running looking for something else. So we are invited into. The previous passage. We are invited into fearing the Lord. Trusting Him. Standing in awe of Him. And loving Him. And so Jesus says. Therefore. In light of this opportunity to fear without fearing, if you follow that logic, he says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Don't you wish it were that simple? Stop it. Stop being anxious right now. Don't you wish that could be the end of the sermon, right? Good, I'm solved, I'm fixed. Well, there's more to this lesson that Jesus is teaching us besides stop it. He's actually saying something from a, heart of a loving father and he gives us some things that teach us in this moment and he says don't be anxious about your life think of the most gentle friend the most kind person coming to you and say don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or about your body what you will put on what are the fears that are right there I will not be provided for I won't have what I need. That takes many various shapes and sizes and forms. It could be you look at your budget and you realize we're behind every single month. It could genuinely be you live in Houston and you're wondering where your clothes and your food are going to come from. Or in South Asia. But whatever it is, it is this question and fear of will I be provided for? And here's what Jesus does. Jesus says in verse 23, don't be anxious for. That four word means because. You don't have to be anxious about being provided for because life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, what is he saying? Life is more than food. 
Life is more than what we possess and what we can hold. There's something about life that has more significance than our possessions. If anybody could speak to this, it would be those in Houston. When there was an evacuation given, they said, we can rebuild your home, we can't resurrect your life. There's this sense that possessions, although important, I'm willing to leave it all behind and evacuate because there's something more important. But what is that that is more important? It's definitely not our possessions. Our possessions, Jesus is wanting to kind of, we've got them like this, and he's kind of pulling with his words and prying our fingers off that we might let go of what we're holding on to so tightly. A.W. Tozer says this in a book called The Pursuit of God. He says that we don't own possessions. Possessions own us. Haven't you found that to be true? Like you thought you were buying something that would make life easier only to find out it's taken like twice as much time. It's broken and now you've got to fix it. The more things you get, the more all of a sudden you feel like you're spending all your time fixing those things. Things in and of themselves aren't bad, but they're not ultimate. Jesus is not saying, I'm indifferent to your needs. The whole book of Luke, he's been pressing in on the church to be his hands and feet, to love the poor and to care for the needy. He's been healing the sick and drawing near to the brokenhearted. Jesus is obviously not indifferent to physical needs. He's just saying they're not ultimate. And when you are extending mercy and seeking to be kind, it's not ultimate to just meet physical needs. It must be done, but it's not the end. The end is, what is life really about? And it's about Him. That's why He says, if you flip all the way down to the end of the passage, verse 33, He says, So sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, because where your treasure is, what? There your heart's going to be. What's most important about life is where your heart is surrendered. And the anxious heart over things is a surrendered heart to those things. And he says, I want to invite you into a surrender to something more important, namely me. It's about the heart. Ed Welch in his book tells of a story of a wife and a marriage that was afraid, afraid of being alone. And I won't describe everything. We have younger viewers in the audience, so to speak, but she was afraid. Now, as she was afraid about being alone at home, her husband, because of some of the things she was afraid of, decided to give her crime statistics and went through and mapped out exactly what all the crime was in her community so that she need not be afraid of those things, all the ideas of what she could be afraid of. So, he began to say, you know, there have only been like in a year, there's been like a bike stolen and there's been like one other thing and therefore you need not be afraid. Did that work? The wives were immediately shaking their heads and you guys were slow. <laughs> Come on, it didn't work. Fix it, guys. I can fix it with my crime stats. That's right. No, didn't work can fix it. Isn't this what happens? When other people are afraid, it just seems so crazy, those fears, right? It's just like foolish that you'd be afraid over these things. But when you're afraid, they're completely justified, right? Completely rational, completely logical. My fears are right. Your fears are stupid, right? Isn't that how this dialogue works? And so the husband, after realizing that the crime stats didn't deliver, he began to put an alarm system up. 
And so, you know, paid the money for the monthly fee, got all the alarm gadgets in the house and things like that. Now, my question for you is, did that work? It worked for a second. But then the fear crept back. Why? Because fear is not primarily located outside of you. Fear is primarily located inside of you. Fear is an issue of the heart. And when Jesus says life is more than about your possessions, he's saying you're giving your heart to something that isn't the ultimate meaning of life. The ultimate meaning of life is the surrender of your heart to me. And we know that because of his analogy that he uses right now. Look at what he says, verse 24. Consider the birds. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Do you remember our first point? Fear forgets. What is fear forgetting in this moment? Fear is forgetting that God is there. It's forgetting that God is near to your situation. How many times has your fears been telling you and convincing you that God is absent? He is distant. He's abandoned you. He's left you to fend for yourself. That's how fear talks. You're in danger of being alone because God has left you. That's how fear talks. And God says, look at the birds. You might call that natural, but here's what is happening. When a bird is eating a worm. I give the bird the ability to understand that it needs to stick its beak in the ground and get a worm. And I put worms where birds can find them. I feed birds. So I, there might be skeptics out there and there might be really intense scientific minds. That's great. I love your scientific mind and I love the mind that asks questions. But at the end of the day, Jesus says this, that's because of me. That bird is eating because I'm feeding it. Why should that comfort the fearful person? Because they're forgetting God's involved. They're forgetting He's around. And if your fears say, okay, I might give you that God is around, your fears will then say, but He's not good even though He's there. Yeah, He's near me, but He's not doing good to me. And that speaks to the second thing that is forgotten. Look at the next sentence. Not only should you consider the birds that God feeds them, He says, and how much more value are you than the birds? God is not only present, He loves you. You're valuable to Him. He cares for you. Fears forget both of those things. They forget that God's around and they convince you that God doesn't care. And neither one is true. God is right there near and if He feeds birds, He cares for you. So you need not worry about whether you'll be provided for. God will provide. So we give props to the husband who listened well to his wife and tried to make some solutions, right? Good husband for listening. But the ultimate thing going on is that the heart needs to be changed. You know what's happening? Worriers. Worriers don't listen very well. They don't listen to counsel. They're pretty insistent that their way is right. I know I am. Aren't you? You don't listen to counsel. And honestly, some of you would want to give Jesus an F in his counseling right here. If you really cared for me, you'd take care of some of these needs that I got. That's how you'd care for me. You might say he's not listening. You might say he's trying to fix it quick with just a few words. If your response to Jesus is you don't get it, 
then part of the reason you're afraid is because of arrogance. There's just pride that elevates yourself over God. Jesus is calling right now for the fearful heart and mind that's forgetting to begin to trust that God provides. How does, it, how does the script flip? How does it flip and say, God, I trust you. Well, he says, consider. Isn't that what the word is in verse 24? Consider. Stop and think. Set your mind upon these things. Set your mind upon that God is there. Set your mind upon that He values you. Friends, we need to go no further than the cross to be convinced that you are valuable to God. He gave His only Son to die for my wretched self. Your sinful self. He gave His Son to communicate, I care for you. I value you. And the thing that breaks my heart the most is those that don't know Jesus don't understand that they can have that value in Him. So where do we get value? Many people will just try to get it from their education. Oh, I've got this much education, therefore I'm valuable. Some of you had a decent home life, and so your parents told you that you were important or that you can do anything and be all that you want to be. And that gave you value. Some of you, you've got money in the bank account, and so that means to you that you're valuable. But I just want to ask, what about those who grew up in the home where they were told they weren't valuable? What about those who don't have a good education? And what about those who are dirt poor? Are they valuable? The problem is nobody's telling them they're valuable. They've been told for year after year, generation after generation, that they're not valuable. And friends, the Black Lives Matter movement, when someone comes up and says all lives matter, you're missing the question. The point is, I don't feel valued. I haven't felt valued. I haven't been valued. And now at present, I don't feel valued. And when someone says all lives matter, of course all lives matter. That's not the point. The point is, year after year, generation after generation, since the founding of our country, I've been told I'm not valuable. Because I don't have education. Or because I don't have economics. And my Savior looks at you and says, you are precious to me. This is the message that must be given. This is the message that must be given to the crime-ridden communities. You are valuable. I just finished a book by John Perkins, his biography. And he tells of walking through Mississippi and a, a kid walking through with a gun and a holster. And he says, what are you getting ready to do with that? And he says, I'm getting ready to go over here and shoot this place up. And he says, why would you do that? And he says, because my life is not worth anything and neither is anybody else's. We assume that crime happens because it's just those people. We, we create this us and them. We create this sense of not understanding the narrative is they don't feel valued. They don't know they're important. They don't know they're loved. And so, of course, there's a sense that nothing matters. Friends, crime-ridden communities need to hear they are valuable and a Savior died for their sins. Impoverished people need to hear they are valuable and there's a Savior who died for their sins. Fatherless homes need to hear. Those children need to hear they're valuable. And Jesus died for their sins. Single parents need to hear that they are valuable. The immigrant needs to hear that they are valuable. Everyone is valuable. Because of Jesus. Good night. He says, fears forget. They forget. The church's role is to remind when the forgetful fears happen that Jesus is near and he says you're valuable. How in the world do you go from forgetful fears to remembering he's there? Psalm 23 shows us the pattern. You got to stop. 
It's like a runaway locomotive that will not stop at all. Your fears are just barreling down. And they're telling you you've been abandoned and you're not important. How do you stop the mess? Psalm 63 describes it just like this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land when there is no water. That's the fertile soil in which fears grow. When you feel as if you're emotionally abandoned, when you feel physically exhausted, that's where fears grow. And what does the psalmist do with that fearful heart? He says, so I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. I considered the birds. I stopped. To not set my mind upon all my fears, but to stop the train and to set my mind upon a God who is there and who values me. The cross tells us, I abandoned my son so you will never be left alone. And the cross says, you are valuable because I gave my son for you. Fears forget. So may we remember and stop and consider the birds as we address our fears. The second thing is that fears expose that we are small. Look at what Jesus says. Fears expose that we are small. He goes on to say in verse 25 this. Of which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Okay, so you following the track of thought here? And he's saying, has your worry... Added to your life. Answer. No. <laughs> Does your worry pan out? Has it, has it fixed things? Did your worry solve things? No. It didn't. Ed Welch says this. He said. Worry says. If I imagine the worst. Then I'll be prepared for it. So we imagine the worst, so we can be prepared. Are you prepared? No. Worry doesn't prepare you for anything. Worry speaks. I'm in danger. I'm alone. I need help. No one's there to rescue me. I'm an orphan in this chaotic world. And what it does is it worry begins to place us at the center. And when we're at the center... Who is there to fix the problem? We've got to fix it, right? Well, Jesus says this. Look at what he says, verse 26. So remember, he's already said verse 25, of which of you being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Did worry pay off? Did it deliver? Did it extend your life? No. He says, if then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I don't know if you're following his train of thought here. If you can't extend your life, then why are you anxious about the rest of everything else? And you know what I think when I first read that? That's the very reason I'm worried about everything else. If I can't extend my life, I'm worried about everything. Because I can't fix it. That's Jesus' point. Did you hear the last phrase I said? I can't fix it. Fears expose that you and I are small. And we can't fix it. We can't fix it. Like every strong emotion, fears try to be the boss, try to tell you what to think, doesn't listen easily to others. And it wants immediate relief. Kind of like a child, if it's afraid, wants to do what? Wants to be near a parent or a grown-up that they trust. Or when you walk through an alley, you want what? You want somebody with you and preferably you want somebody that's fairly strong. Right? Especially if it's dark. Here's a quote about our fears. Ed Welch says, Fears calls out for a person bigger than ourselves. This is Jesus' point. Fears are calling out for a person bigger than ourselves. 
Then, just as fear and anxiety are about to embrace another human being who almost fits the bill, fear remembers that people are unreliable. You follow this? I'm afraid, so my spouse can fix it. My boss can fix it. My parents can fix it. Somebody can fix it. But then you remember, people are what? Unreliable. Fear quickly hits the default switch and opts for independence, control, and self-protection. The problem is that our worries and fears remind us of our own smallness. So to rely on ourselves takes us back to where we started. But what else can we do? I love this image. At this apparent cul-de-sac, we find God. There's no outlet. If you are jaded because you feel as though God has been unreliable, look at it this way. There are no other choices. Other people can't quite be trusted, and you're definitely not in control. That limits the field to God himself. Fears try to convince you that you can handle it. But then when reality hits your fears, you realize that you can't fix it. Fears tell us that we are small and we can't fix it. So, like if you're in a plane, probably nobody's going to ever fly in a plane again after this sermon. If you're in a plane and the pilot says, everyone, I need you to put your seatbelts on. We're going to have to have an emergency landing. At that point, I would venture to say, no one in the room is going to jump up from the seat and run to the cockpit and try to take over the plane. Because you know you can't fly a plane. So what you do is you buckle and then everybody gets religious. And everybody starts calling out to somebody to fix this problem. That's what happens, right? Because you can't fix it. And I've been asked quite a bit about how in the world should we be processing all that has been happening in our world recently. Hurricane Harvey, and then three hurricanes forming, Hurricane Irma, now colliding with Florida, an 8.0 earthquake in Mexico, a monsoon that's flooded South Asia with over 1,200 that have died plus. You have forest fires all up and down the West Coast, and these are just the ones that we're told about in the media let alone famine in certain countries and droughts and these kind of things? How are we supposed to perceive these things and deal with these things? I do believe what Jesus is asking us to remember is that fears just expose that we are small. We're unable to fix these problems. And what it is meant to do, it is meant to put within us the understanding that this life is short. Life's more than our possessions, right? But it's also meant to put in within us a longing for something greater. This earth is not our home. It is broken. Even Romans 8 actually describes what is happening I don't know if you think about this way, but hurricanes, tornadoes, these kind of things that are happening, it is the earth groaning for Jesus to come back again. It is the demonstration that things are not as they should be. And if the earth is going to groan for Jesus to come back again, don't you think that's the appropriate response for us? Oh God, we want to see you face to face. Being with you is our home. Being with you is better. That is meant to be the response as we see all of this catastrophe that's happening. And the bottom line is, therefore, it should lead us all to turn from sin and to embrace Jesus. Some have said, is this the end times? It sure could be. I don't know. It could have been the end times when hurricanes came 10 years ago, too. And fires as well. All I know is these things are calling us to long for Jesus to come, to remember that life is short and what's important, and to surrender our lives wholly to Him. And why is that? Because fears make us small, and it's telling us that we can't fix these problems. Fears also 
make us small because we have an atrocious track record. Let's just be really honest. Your track record with your fears is dismal. Okay? You are probably about 5% accurate with your fears. That's probably generous. But you're about 5% accurate. So teachers in the room, let me poll you. If your students were getting 5% on their tests, would you feel like that they have mastered the material? No. You would be worried because they're not doing well. But we are convinced we're really good at this predicting thing. I want to tell you, if that is your measure of good, then I encourage you not to go in business for this and try to make money. Or you will be out of business really quickly. That should be the sign that's before your fear door, and that is out of business. Because you're a bad predictor. You're bad at it. And we rewrite our predictions to try to bump up our score. It's like grading on a curve. Like this. I'm just going to stick with the plane theme. The plane is going to crash and go up in flames. I know it is. So I can't travel. Finally got up enough gumption. You're in the plane. The pilot comes over and he says, Passengers, I'm sorry. There's going to be a brief delay for a small repair that needs to be done on the left wing. And you're like, yes, I knew it. I knew that something was going to happen with the plane. No, you said the plane was going to go down and crash in flames. That's what you said. But no, you're convinced that's exactly what you meant with your fears. That you were right and therefore you get a check. That's your A. That's your good prediction. We rewrite all of our predictions in order to make ourselves feel as if our fear was valid. We are stubborn. We rewrite prophecies. We lie to ourselves. Our track record is atrocious. Fears lead us to feel small. That's how we should feel. Because we can't fix it. Our track record is atrocious. And we need to remember, your feelings are liars. Many times, your feelings are liars. How you feel is not always reality. But hear me, how you feel is important. How you feel is important to God. And that's where we're going to go in a second. But let's just make sure and remember that your fears or your feelings are not sovereign. God is. Your feelings are not in control and they're rarely accurate. But they're real. And God cares for them. But let's just tease this out a little bit. Even if your fears are realized and something you're afraid of actually comes to pass, I promise you this. Flip back up to the first point. Your God will be near to you. And He will communicate to you that you are valuable. And even though you would have never chosen to go through those struggles, you will know His nearness and His faithfulness. And He will have been kind to you and taught you things that would not have been learned had you not walked through those things. And it's because He never left you. You'll have strength you didn't think you had. You'll have wisdom you didn't think you'll have. You would receive comfort in ways you wouldn't think you would receive comfort. Therefore, because God is with you and you are valuable, you need not. And so for some of you, you're parents, and you have little kids that are afraid a lot. I want you to be patient with them like you want God to be patient with you. I encourage you. What do your children need to know? They need to know that they are small and out of control, and they need to know that God is always with them. And as parents, we communicate that by being with them sometimes. So sometimes if they're afraid of the dark, sometimes it's good for them to sleep in your room, to know that you are with them. Other times it's good for them to sleep in their own room, to know that God is with them and to work through those fears on their own. There's no rules there. I'm just encouraging you. Be a picture of Jesus who's patient with our fears, even as irrational as they are. My sister had a fear of ants and flies. 
I don't remember almost anything from my childhood. Like, I just have a really bad memory. My wife remembers, like, when she was two, all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, I don't remember anything, but I remember this. My sister being terrified of flies. Like, we'd be outside playing. You'd see a fly, scream at the top of her lungs, and run inside. I mean, it was just like, what is going on? Sees this tiny little ant. Like, I mean, Bigfoot, tiny ant, you know, I can do this. No, terrified, run, sprints into the house. Fears are not very rational. But God cares about your feelings. And we know that. From this last piece, because fears lead us to trust in God. Look at what he says. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass. Do you hear that? Grass growing is God clothing grass. I love that. I hope you never look at grass the same. God's clothing grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Back then, fuel was expensive, and so they would actually take whole bunches of grass and throw it in to keep a fire going in order to produce some type of fuel. So grass regularly there was just thrown into a cauldron to keep a fire blazing. And so he says, if God spends all that time clothing grass, which is going to be picked up and thrown into the fire, what does he say? How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? You see this? He's just inviting you in to know he cares for you. He says, don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations in the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. What's he saying? He's saying, here's the summary. What you seek, you will fear. What you seek after, you will fear. He's not saying don't work in order to provide for your family. He's not saying it's bad to have possessions. He's saying what you spend the majority of your time and energy and focus going after, that is what you will fear. So fear the Lord. Draw near to Him. Be still before Him because your Father knows what you need and He'll take care of you. If you remember back to the Lord's Prayer, we said many times when we feel like we need more income, many times we might be afraid to pray for that. Feel maybe a little embarrassed to kind of ask God for something like that. Maybe He's too busy. I don't know what your thoughts are. But you don't ask for it. Instead, what you do is you work 20 more hours in order to try to provide it yourself. He's saying, no. Don't seek after these things. Be still. Fall on your face in prayer. Call out to me. Stop. I care about you and I know what you need. This is the invitation of the Father. He says, I know, and therefore, verse 31, instead, seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Seek Him. Seek Him. Remember, fear has you running away, but the fear of the Lord has you drawing near. That's the point. Fears cripple you, and they leave you running, scattered in terror. God says, fear me and draw near Seek my kingdom. What you seek, you will fear. So seek the Lord that knows. And look at verse 32. Seek the Lord that cares. Fear not, little flock. You hear this? He's like, he's not saying, I'm angry at you and I'm frustrated that you're a fearful people. He says, he didn't have to put little flock in there. He could just say, get over it. You're a crazy, fearful mess. Instead, he says, you are my little children, and I love you, and you need not fear. Do you know that is the command that is larger than any other command in the Scriptures? More than any other command. Over 300 times, he says, don't be afraid. Because he is a father who cares. He is a father who knows. And he says this, It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The image of father is to say he cares. The image of kingdom is to say the father is able. He is the king over all jurisdiction. He can do what you don't think he can do. 
And then it says, it's the kingly father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The father is generous. He's not stingy. When it talks about the goodness of God in the scriptures, it says he is abundantly good. He loves giving to you. He's promising right here in this verse that his kingdom, his mercy, his goodness will break into your life. So you need not be afraid. This is the point of the passage. When you are afraid, remember your fears are forgetting that God is with you and that you are valuable to him. Your fears are exposing that you are small. You can't fix it and you're a bad prophet. But he's with you and he cares for you. So come and seek the father who knows you, who cares for you, who is able and who is generous. And as you do, you'll be able to see fears begin to dissipate and love rise. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would take care of us in our fears. We're afraid that relationships will fall apart. We're afraid of financial situations. We're afraid of so much. But right now, there's this eerie sense of potential calm because you are here. And I ask, oh God, that you would bring to our mind your goodness, your nearness, and you would convince our hearts that you care for us and that we are valuable in your sight. So, Father, please, in this moment right now, I ask that you would help us to acknowledge where we are afraid and to confess that you are enough, that you care and that you're with us. Please, Lord, may there be a surrender of the fears before us. May we not run away towards our own agenda. May we be humble and listen and stop and consider the birds and consider the grass, consider the cross where love and mercy meet. Father, I pray right now that as we take the Lord's Supper, you would do a changing work within our hearts. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.